0: And so, uh, remember back to our definition that we talked about, okay, it was all the species in the area, their interaction with their environment, which includes other living things, uh, produces energy flow, uh, nutrient cycles, uh, that should be trophic levels, and of course, biotic diversity, which is uh, really what we, uh, we talked about the whole first part of the semester. Okay. Uh, <clears throat> So this is, uh, you know, again, back to an example of a uh, of trophic structure. Uh, this is a, a marine uh, ecosystem. Uh, and, <clears throat> again, not all-inclusive because we don't even know everything that's there. Uh, but it's, it's an indication of what you're trying to look at uh, when you are trying to figure out what is the energy flow in an ecosystem. Okay? Energy flow is what makes it one. Uh, In this case, the primary source of energy is sunlight. This is, you notice there's only one place here where energy is coming in from outside the system. And energy can't be created, energy can only be used. Okay? So this is your source into the phytoplankton, um, right here. Then the uh, zooplankton. And then you see then lines to, uh, to all of the other organisms. Uh, you'll notice that organisms appear on more than one level. But the <clears throat> lines tend to converge in, in really two places. One, and the primary one is on the krill. Krill are little shrimp-like organisms um, that uh, are really the primary food for penguins, uh, for whales—at uh, least the uh, those whales that uh, are uh, uh, filter feeder type whales—that's um, <clears throat> what they eat. They eat krill. They eat zooplankton. Those huge animals. That's how they sustain themselves. And so, when you draw this out like this, you can see that if there is an impact on the krill, this is going to impact large part of the ecosystem okay so one of the advantages of these diagrams other than trying to understand the energy flow is it tells you where the vulnerable locations are in an ecosystem now uh, octopi are also somewhat of a uh, species here that uh, is fed on by, by uh, many other organisms but the krill uh, krill eat a zooplankton they eat the phytoplankton there also will eat poser stuff, Uh, but uh, they're fed on by squids, by uh, penguins, all the different kinds of penguins, by the whales, Uh, and then of course the squids are fed on by sperm whales and ocean fish and and some seabirds, and so the krill occupy a very uh, uh, central location in this in this ecosystem. But this is what we mean by a food web, and this is one of the values of drawing a food web: is being able to see. What are the interactions? what are your what are your key species in this in the ecosystem? Now remember we talked about energy transfer and so um, if I looked at all of the energy that was trapped by autotrophs in some given time period and obviously I'd have to uh, bound that by a space by you know a particular area. Uh, that's the what's called gross primary productivity. Now all of that energy, does not go on to the next level because the, the those producers that uh, down here are having to do res- cell respiration uh, you know they're using some of that energy in order to just stay alive they're using some of that energy uh, obviously to reproduce um, you know just to maintain their lives okay so so not all of that energy is going to be available and studies have shown that basically 10% percent of the energy at a Trophic level can be ends up being passed into the organisms of the next level. Okay, it's very rare to have more than that. Okay, so what you see here then, if these are your this, and this is referred to here as an energy pyramid, because the size of each block it represents the amount of energy in that block. So producers, this is your gross primary productivity right here. Okay the total amount they've been able to bring in. Uh, Now, net primary productivity is what's available for the next level, okay? And you'll notice that this is all that actually gets transferred to the next level. Okay, that's roughly 10%. So at each level of an ecosystem, as you go from one feeding level to another, about 90% of the energy is lost. It's lost in lots of ways. for instance, uh, if you were to look at, um, well, we have coyotes around here, Okay, uh, they obviously hunt mostly small mammals, uh, so it's mostly rodents, that's what they feed primarily on. Okay, so let's say a coyote uh, uh, catches a rabbit. Now, the coyote used a whole lot of energy to catch that rabbit, that energy is not available for growth, it's not available for, for the pups, it's not available for anything else, it was expended. In, in catching the rabbit. Okay? Now, it doesn't eat every scrap of the rabbit. There are going to be parts of the rabbit it does not eat. Okay? Those represent energy that does not pass into the next level. Okay? The coyote's going to use energy just to stay alive. That energy cannot be passed on to the next to the next level. Okay? Uh, so there's a lot of places that energy. Uh, in fact, we could even break it down farther. Of the of the mass of rabbit that the coyote actually ingests, so not all of that gets digested fully. Okay, so some of it passes out in feces. There's energy there, which microbes will use, and, and so on. But coyote doesn't get that energy. Um, There are uh, parts of the the rabbit that are not digestible um, by the coyote. So uh, all of those represent places where energy is going to be lost from one level to the next. And there are a lot of them. In the winter, you have even less energy transfer because the animals spend much more energy just to stay warm. Uh, they're going to expend more of that energy. So it's not available to go to the next level. So on average, 10% passes to the next level. Now, what that shows you really nicely in the diagram is pretty soon um, the number of individuals at each level declines rapidly. And that's why you don't find a lot of hawks in an area. There's only so much. They're kind of, you know, or bald eagles, or mountain lions, if you will, or in... Uh, India or China, there's a, an old saying that says there's only one tiger to a mountain. Okay, <clears throat> those animals need, you know, they're they're top level predators. Uh, there's only so much energy available for them. You cannot support a lot of them in one area. Okay, and this illustrates that. Okay, so uh, rarely do you see more than four levels in an ecosystem. Uh, occasionally, you'll see a fifth level. It just depends on the particular ecosystem. But you'll have producers, primary, secondary, tertiary, occasionally quaternary uh, consumers uh, in an ecosystem. Now, uh, just as an example of how that impacts us uh, and may impact us more in the future, here are two different food pyramids over here, or energy pyramids, and here we have grain, okay? So many calories are worth worth of grain. We feed that to cows, and so 90% is lost. Cows are, you know, like any other animal, not all that efficient. And then, this is how much energy is available to feed humans, this small amount. Now, on the other side over here, if we all ate grains only, you could support this many people. There would be this much energy available, okay, 10 times as much energy is available. Now, This is probably the best argument there is for uh, vegetarianism, um, I think. Uh, And you'll find that if you go to, not that I'm a vegetarian, but that's one of the better arguments. Uh, If you go into third world countries, uh, meat is something that that people do not have every day. They eat mostly grains because you can support a much larger number of, of individuals on grains than you can on the meat from animals that eat the grains. Okay? The energy pyramid shows you that very, you know, very clearly. Okay. So this is, the, this is your energy transfer route. Uh, here's an example where they actually quantified the amount of energy, or I should say the number of individuals. This was uh, one of the early studies done, and uh, this is a pyramid of biomass. So they figured out exactly how many organisms uh, they had at each level um, and they uh, figured out how much they weigh usually that's a dry weight so they took a sampling and they dried them out and weighed them and, and they calculate. all right if i got this many of them uh, this is what it would weigh and again you can see that the, the numbers go down very quickly okay. the number of organisms Lots and lots of primary producers, many, many fewer first-level consumers. And then as you get up to the second level and then even into the third level, you know, like in this particular area, there might be one large bass. There's just not enough energy there to support. So if you're a fisherman and you're, you know, when you go out sports fishing, there aren't going to be a lot of what you want to catch because the stream or lake can only support so many of those. Now, when you catch one and you take it out, now that means there's room for another one. okay? Which is kind of the idea behind sustainable harvesting, you know, if, if we actually did that. This is the energy flow in that same spring, Silver Spring, Florida. Uh, this is the energy found in producers and then the herbivores, the carnivores, and then the top carnivores. Again, the pyramid rapidly goes to a point, and you're not going to have very many top carnivores. There just is not going to be energy to support them. Uh, just another example. So this is a kind of a the annual energy flow uh, <clears throat> a model, really. Uh, estimated this many kilocalories of energy from the sun, this much doesn't even get absorbed. 98% does not even get absorbed by your producers. Producer photosynthesis is not the most efficient process. Okay? So the largest amount of that energy ends up in its heat. Seems true here. The largest amount of the sun's energy Is not absorbed by the trees or the grass or whatever. Most of it ends up as heat, which means it's not available to the ecosystem. And then they follow through uh, the flow from producers to herbivores to carnivores and so on down. uh, And you can see that the numbers are roughly ten percent on as you go on down. That's where that number comes from.
1: This is a very early
0: pioneering study. It was done by uh, a researcher uh, by the name of Odom, who was at the University of Georgia. Uh, he was one of the first to quantify this kind of stuff. Uh, prior to that, ecology was mostly a descriptive science. Uh, he got into the, you know, again, starting to quantify. And when you start quantifying, you start seeing relationships even more clearly. Not always easy to quantify, but that's, that's what you get. Part of what this, uh, this all of this energy goes to do besides the, uh, the living organisms are biogeochemical cycles. Okay, so energy comes in from sunlight. It's absorbed by producers. It flows through your consumers, and then most of it is lost as heat due to respiration or activities of the organism, uh, or it's wasted, and it all ends up as heat back in the atmosphere. Atmosphere, that heat radiates back out in space. Space is cold. Okay, Heat in our atmosphere, well, radiates constantly back out into space. So there's an energy budget for the planet. So much energy comes from the sun. An equivalent amount of energy needs to leave, although not all at the same time. Now coal, oil, things like that are basically stored energy from plants from many years ago. Um, So it's kind of like stored sunlight, really, basically what what those uh, fuels are, fossil fuels. All right, so let's look at a couple of the uh, geochemical cycles. Uh, Now, here's a generic one. Whatever uh, nutrient you're talking about, usually we're looking at particular, either atoms or molecules uh, that are of interest. There's going to be a reservoir where most of those are, somewhere in that ecosystem. And then a a portion of that is made available to the ecosystem through the primary producers into the consumers, uh, the decomposers still available some of that that was available leaves these things keep cycling around through the ecosystem. So this is for a land ecosystem now um, so here's an example of one this is this is the one you probably learned when you were like what, second grade third grade uh, the water cycle everybody know they teach that in elementary school. Um, but it's, it is a cycle where is the reservoir? Well the primary reservoir is the oceans for most of the water is it evaporates, okay? Eventually it condenses and it rains. Remember they did all the little things with their fingers and so on. Um, and if it rains, about, obviously back into the ocean, it just goes back there. If it rains on land, it gradually moves across the land, and you eventually ends up back in the ocean, either on an overland route because runoff or through rivers, or some of it will move as groundwater. Okay. All right. Now. There is, one of the things you, we don't think about with this so much, and I don't think maybe they don't teach it as well, is uh, none of this happens without an energy source. Okay? In this case, the energy source is sunlight. Sunlight is what makes the evaporation occur. If there were no energy source, the water wouldn't go anywhere. It would just lay there. All right? So this is a simple one because the sun does not not involve living organisms that much. I mean, yes, it goes through living organisms, but we're really a pretty minor part of all that. Now, let's look at some that uh, involve living organisms. Uh, This is just the uh, evaporation, precipitation, transpiration back in there, all through the ground, all the different ways that it goes through. Uh, This is a place in uh, New Hampshire, I believe, where they have uh, taken a, a, a forest area there. This is a watershed. And they actually have these weirs as the water comes down through, and they actually measure exactly how much water comes through those streams and out, out of the ecosystem. So they can measure when it rains, what is the total amount that runs off, how much sinks into the ground. Uh, they can experimentally take a little plot, and they can clear the trees and then see what happens when it rains, how, you know, what what is the runoff pattern change when you do that, which is considerable. Runoff greatly increases when there's no train, no trees in an area, um, uh, because the trees break up the water. The rain as it falls down, and those droplets get broken up into like a spray by the the leaves and the branches before they hit the ground. Plus, you have all the leaf litter and that on the ground. This really reduces greatly the amount of water that runs off. It is you, know, you have a lot less erosion in those conditions, and this is a. This is an experimental forest up in, up in New Hampshire where a lot of uh, studies have been done about that, uh, looking at the water cycle. Um, and this just gives you an example uh, of uh, this is uh, the bottom line here is water loss from undisturbed watershed. The trees are all left. Here's what happens. You notice the same And then they cut down all the trees in an area, an experimental plot. You see that around here. If you just drive on any of the back roads around here, you'll see uh, clear cut uh, areas. And what happens is right after that, you have a tremendous increase in the amount of water that's lost from the watershed. It runs off because there's nothing to slow it down or keep it from running off. Here's a different one this is the carbon cycle. You hear a lot about that today. Where's all the carbon dioxide? You know, I mean, how much is there? Uh, this is a major factor in, uh, in possibly changing the Earth's climate. Right? All right, so what is the, the primary reservoir here? Uh, there's really two. You have the atmosphere, carbon dioxide that's in the atmosphere. It's really a pretty small part, percentage-wise. There's not a lot of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, but a lot of atmosphere. So it gives you a lot of carbon dioxide. The other location is in the ocean. Uh, Carbon dioxide uh, dissolves in in seawater and then turns into bicarbonate ions. Uh, A lot of that carbon then goes into making shells of marine organisms. So the oceans become a, a, a second reservoir. Now, carbon moves, okay? So some of it dissolves in the ocean. Some amount is taken up by plants for photosynthesis. They of course are doing respiration, which puts that carbon right back into the atmosphere. Um, some of it goes into growth. Consumers eat that, uh, and they of course respire, uh, and then they <coughs> keep on. They die. Decomposers break them down. They respire. You get carbon going back. Um, if you get enough trees, enough vegetation, uh, you can develop fossil fuels. That is probably. Well, the climate of the planet right now does not facilitate that. Most of the fossil fuels were, were laid down during a time period when there were many shallow oceans because of the, the, the continents in under different arrangements. Uh, and, and they the vegetation died or fell down into these swampy areas and it did uh, decay. Uh, and, uh, so, but today what we're doing is taking those fossil fuels and we're using them, which puts carbon back into the atmosphere. And so this is your cycle, carbon cycle. And the biggest con- one of the big concerns today is how much carbon dioxide do we have in the air? You can look at charts. Uh, uh, NASA puts them out uh, monthly uh, as to the, the carbon dioxide levels. Uh, as far as we are able to measure, the amount of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere is higher right now than it has ever been. So who cares? Now, well, it turns out that carbon dioxide acts like a greenhouse is a greenhouse gas. What does that mean? Well, you know, yesterday it was fairly warm outside. So if you uh, left your car out in the parking lot, you closed all your windows when you went out to get in the car, it was hot in the car. Because sunlight's going through the windows, through the glass, it hits the inside of your car. You can go outside and stand in the sun, you can feel the heat, that's the energy. When When sunlight impacts something a lot, most of the energy turns to heat. And so that heat was building up inside the car. Why does it build up? Because the glass, while it is allows ultraviolet radiation in, is an insulator for infrared, which is heat. And so much of the heat ends up trapped inside the car until you go out there and open the door. And when it gets to be 95 out there, you open that door, and it's, it's you know you bake bread on the seats probably if you wanted to. Uh, it gets really warm. Well. Carbon dioxide in the atmosphere works very similarly. And okay? carbon dioxide in the atmosphere tends to absorb uh, and block heat energy, prevent heat energy from leaving the, the Earth. Okay? And so there's a concern that this is going to change the average climate. Now, um, we've already seen twice from uh, NASA sources. On, now, of course, we start talking about weather. Weather is a short-term phenomenon. Uh, Climate's a, a long term, uh, but February, uh, January, and February of this year are the two overall warmest on record for the planet. Something's changing. Whether it's a permanent change, whether it's a, a short term change, we're not going to know until we until it continues. But the carbon cycle is one this has lots of interest right now. There's even talk of sequestering. Uh, carbon, taking carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere and pumping it into the ground so, so that it's not out in the atmosphere. Uh, I mean, there, there are places talking about doing that kind of thing. Okay? Can it just be a big cycle and we'll see the full rotation? Yeah, it, the carbon's got to go somewhere. Yeah. What we're doing, uh, what humans are contributing to is really is the fossil fuel side because those have been... Those, those have been carbon, that's been carbon that's been stored on, you know, in the earth for centuries, hundreds of thousands of years. And now we're letting it out at a much, at a rate greater than it is put in. So you get a net increase in carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. Okay. Now, carbon is important. I mean, you know, the carbon cycle is important. Remember, you're a carbon-based life form. Okay. Carbohydrates, lipids, proteins—all that stuff, carbon backbones on those. So it's not like carbon's not important; it's very important. But this is an ecological cycle, okay? And understanding that cycle is important to understanding what's happening now on the planet. And do we have an impact or not? That I think the uh, the question has about five years ago. Most people are saying, well, there is no climate change. No, it's just, it's not, not so many people saying that anymore. I think the idea that the climate is changing is becoming accepted. Now the argument is, well, it has nothing to do with us. It's just a natural cycle, and we don't contribute to it. That's, the, that's usually now the, one of the responses you get. I guess we're going to find out. It's like a grand experiment going on, and we're going to get to find out. By the time we find out it's too late doing the body all right so that's a carbon cycle now where's the energy that drives this Where's the energy that makes it? makes the carbon move through the cycle Living organisms, yeah. Living organisms are what are moving that carbon. They're taking it in, they're using it, they're sending it back. Um, this is very different than the water cycle where you just had uh, sunlight evaporating and then condensation occurring around and around. You know, Here, you have living organisms very intimately involved in moving that carbon from place to place. Whether it's sequestering it as fossil fuels or whether it's you know, everybody's breathing and Every time you exhale, you're sending carbon dioxide out into the atmosphere. Okay. As you have fewer and fewer, or less and less vegetation, you have fewer organisms taking that carbon dioxide and using it to for photosynthesis. One of the issues there's a, a in my online class we do a, a little exercise on the Amazon basin and uh, and uh, cutting down of the forest. What's the impact? That's pretty significant in terms of there's all of that this tree is trees no longer there to take carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere. Okay, so that's carbon cycle. Uh, this is a nitrogen cycle. Okay, living things need nitrogen. What do you use nitrogen? Okay. Proteins is one. Remember, amino acids are what proteins are made out of. Amino means nitrogen, okay? That's what the amino part says. Every amino acid has at least one nitrogen in it. What else do you use nitrogen to make? Yeah. What? DNA. DNA, nucleic acids. DNA, RNA, all the, the whole group, okay? So nitrogen is an essential nutrient. Now,
1: we get our nitrogen
0: from where? more food. Exactly. Right. The reservoir of nitrogen is the atmosphere. And you're walking around in a nitrogen cloud. 80% of what you're walking around in and breathing is nitrogen. Uh, for the most part, for us, it's inert. It has no impact on us. We don't use it. It's just there. It doesn't harm us. I mean, we, obviously, we've evolved in a world that's like that. Um, it has really no, no impact. But somehow, that nitrogen needs to get into the food chain. So that plants can use it to do photosynthesis, to build all the the molecules they need, and then animals can eat the plants and get it, and then animals can eat each other, and then decomposers can break down the dead animals and plants, they all have to have nitrogen. Now, the problem is that nitrogen in the atmosphere is, uh, it's all in the form of in- the form of N2. And what this means is you have two nitrogen ion atoms and they have three covalent bonds holding them together. Plants do not have the enzymes, the ability to break that bond. So all that atmospheric nitrogen is really useless to the plants. What we rely on are microbes or or human processes, what's used then uses more fossil fuels. But we'll, we'll get to that in a minute. Uh, you have types of uh, bacteria called nitrifying bacteria that live in a symbiotic relationship with plant roots. We talked about that when we did the plants, okay? And what they do is they break that bond and they convert this usually into uh, into ammonia first, and then it gets into NO2 or you NO3. Know, and then the plants can use plants can then use that. Plants can take that in, they can use that to, to build new amino acids, to build uh, nucleic acids, so that we can so that animals can eat them, and then animals can eat each other, and so on and so on. Uh, this is the only natural source of nitrogen for living things in an ecosystem. Today, with uh, a lot of farming has become very mechanized, very large-scale farming, um, we're now waiting for that. And years ago, they did crop rotation, okay, and, and some and some farmers still do that, who, who choose not to use so much uh, uh, inorganic fertilizers, you know, purchase fertilizers. And what you did is you planted plants that that facilitate those interactions with the nitrogen-fixing bacteria, like clover, beans, soybeans are great for that. Uh, green beans, peas, uh, alfalfa, clover—all of those are legumes. Legumes are—they have this association. And so you would grow those in your field, and they would leave more nitrogen behind than they used. Then you could plant something else that used—that was a net user of nitrogen corn. Corn sucks nitrogen out of the soil. Tobacco is horrible with nitrogen, taking nitrogen out of the soil. Okay, You cannot grow those in the same place year after year and get a decent yield. So your option was to rotate your crops so that you put nitrogen back in or of course now people simply buy chemical fertilizers and, and you'll see they'll, they'll go down the row with the tractor, the thing behind it, a big tank on the back and they're injecting ammonia directly into the soil. Now, where does the ammonia come from? It comes from an industrial process that uses fossil fuels to make it, okay? That's industrial farming, and and, and it has produced much more food for the world by doing that. So that's a nitrogen cycle. And you can also look at a phosphorus cycle. The only uh, phosphorus is important. What do you need phosphorus for? for what? ATP, ATP, right, phosphorus, ATP, also needed for nucleic acids. Um, Phosphorus is an essential, another essential nutrient. Now this one differs only in that the reservoir is sedimentary rock. The reservoir for this is in the earth or under the the oceans. And then over time it gets raised up and you get weathering and uh, phosphorus becomes available the phosphates dissolve in the water on and they become available for plants and animals and so on uh, and so uh, this is just uh, these are kind of the, the really basic biogeochemical cycles that they usually talk about uh, so water carbon nitrogen and phosphorus got to have all of those and if you look at a, a bag of fertilizer and it's got three numbers on the front those three numbers tell you how much uh, nitrogen phosphorus and what's the other one iron I can't remember what the third one is uh, but are in that fertilizer, because that's what the soil is going to be lacking. Okay. So understanding these cycles becomes important. You may have heard years ago, they, well, I think they still do it, uh, harvesting guano. Okay, There are islands in the Pacific where seabirds had nested for centuries. Uh, they're covered in guano, Well, which is bird feces all over everything. People would harvest that because it was a rich source of phosphorus, potash. They refer to it. Uh, you can only do that for so long, and then the, the birds aren't depositing it as fast as you're removing it, and then you, you know, you start to run out. We're good at doing that. All right. uh, so that's just kind of a, a, a way to finish up here a little bit on ecosystems, and what I want to do now is I want you to get into groups of about three or four people. Uh, there'll be four over there. Well, we can have two groups of five here, that's fine. Uh, and uh, we're going to do a case study, okay? Um, and I'll, we're going to go over the introduction to it. I'll stop it uh, and I'll give you time to answer questions. Uh, you'll write out the answers on a sheet of paper with everybody's name on it. You we'll turn those in. Uh, so let me get this out of the Okay, this is a case study that has to do with uh, uh, sea lions in Alaska, Um, and uh, this is actually the data. And this is probably about 15 years old, but uh, it's an excellent case study about ecosystem functioning, food chains, food webs, and human interference. Okay, so it really gets into all of those. So uh, basically, we start off with an introduction of some basic data. So what they had, obviously uh, marine, there's a marine mammal uh, lab uh, as part of the Alaska fisheries uh, and also as part of the uh, national fisheries. And what they had noticed is that uh, an organism called the stellar sea lion was rapidly going extinct. Let's look at stellar sea lions so you get an idea of what they are. So these are, the, these are the animals that we're looking at, looking at here. Uh, they're pretty good size. Um, we have videos. Yeah, so here's a little video about them. All right, so let's give you an idea of their size. They're pretty big animals. There it does. Yeah. pretty good size Aww. with some fish crops in it, so. Let's see if we can move along here to where they Okay, so there's a rookery. Uh, sea lions and seals, they tend to be in groups. Um, when they're not fishing, they like the sun. And yeah, they just walk all over each other. The males during mating season will come ashore and they will fight uh, over harems and have multiple females. Okay, that just gives you, I wanted you to get a little idea of what the sea lions are. advantage of this all right so the, the numbers were dropping that's what they were seeing uh, <clears throat> but the point here was that the, the, the decline in numbers is not uniform okay now this is uh, Prince William Sound right here this area this is where the uh, big oil spill was a number of years ago the, you know, the Exxon Valdez okay. So this is where uh, uh, that area right here all right so From Prince William Sound over through the Aleutian Islands, this is the Aleutian Island chain and then all the way over to Russia, Uh, they observed uh, an 85 uh, to 90% decrease in the number of sea lions, Uh, and that's referred to as the western stock of of stellar sea lions. Okay, the eastern stock over here is from Prince William Sound down toward the United States, Particular area was there was actually an increase in the number of sea lions, so they're trying to figure out, all right, what's going on here, what's causing this. Right, so, let's look at some more information. So this is a graph then of the uh, what's been going on, and as you can see the western stock has really, really gone down. Okay? Now, um, now the particular concern is that the pups, the pups, the juveniles are not surviving. Uh, uh, it takes them uh, almost, uh, 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 what does it say, uh, three to eight years before they are sexually mature, and most of the pups are not surviving for three years. They're dying, okay? Um, they're too small, uh, and that makes them more vulnerable to, to the climate. Uh, and when they're young, they have higher energy requirements. You know, it's like children do, okay? for with us. Uh, so they have higher energy requirements. They're not experienced hunters at that point, so they're not as good at catching fish as the adults are. Um, but they're, by the time they're two or three years old, they're independent because mom's gone off and she's having one or two pups, and somehow not taking care of you anymore. So, so they wanted to try to understand what's, what's happening in this environment. So this is part one. And I know you don't have much information yet. This is more of a brainstorming section here. Uh, I want you to look at those two questions and write down answer as much as you can. What you think might be going on? And then we're going to look at some data and, uh, that they have. Okay? So divide up into groups. Uh, no more than five. Uh, well, I. So let's uh, let's try to keep let's try and keep it to four here. And one, two, three, four, and then four over there. So that would give us uh, three groups of four people. I mean, excuse me, four groups of four. Uh, Each group, go ahead and do this exercise. we will take about 15 minutes. Um, And then I'll go over the next part of this, um, and we'll see how much we have time to do. Well, maybe about 10 minutes, probably not. It has to do with external ears and things uh seals do not have any external ears though I think sea we'll to look and see what the difference is. Yeah. Yeah, some seals are Yeah. seals <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, My My I don't get too much I uh, think the, the uh, 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 no uh, it's I don't I I Where it went. Uh, oh, you got this. The was obvious. One. Okay, then. I just sped something. No, it's good, but it's too nice to read. Yes. And that's what you know you're doing. Everything um, becomes the tune.